Well, good morning, church. <clears throat> I woke up this morning and my voice wanted to lo- leave me. So I might sound at times like a 13-year-old Troy or Barry White. So, <clears throat> But it'll get going. Well, one of the saddest things in life is when you realize that someone you admire lets you down. Right, some of you may be able to meet a hero of yours, um, and maybe they blew you off, or you fell in love with an author <clears throat> or a politician, and before you know it, a scandal comes out about them. For me, it was not as tragic, uh, but I probably was 13 years old, uh, coincidentally. I, I was with my dad in Florida and Tampa, and um, every year we'd go for spring break to go watch spring training baseball games. So that's how boring we are. We go and watch seven games that don't matter at all. We'd get there two or three hours early, watch batting practice, and I always zeroed in on one or two players I want to take a picture with or get an autograph from. And we were at a Philadelphia Phillies game, and I wanted to meet one of the star players. And I'm there on the first row. I got my baseball and my pen ready, and here comes the player out of the dugout. And I'm like, he's going to come over here. So he's just a couple people down from me. And all of a sudden, he's, he gets to me, he makes eye contact with me, he reaches out, and all of a sudden, these people swarm around me, and all of a sudden, uh, a, a lady begins to yell his name, and he looks up at her and smiles and skips me and goes right to her. From that day on, I struggled to cheer for him. And I want to protect his name. I know a lot of uh, Major League Baseball players watch our services every Sunday, now, this is not a sermon on bitterness, though this should be, maybe. But in that moment, a baseball hero of mine for the Phillies, who played so well defensively, had great offensive skill. He let me down relationally. I know it was just one moment, but it was my moment, okay? He let me down. But this happens in our religious circles, too, right? Just because someone is a, a skilled preacher or the most intelligent theologian or the best worship leader, the best Christian author or podcaster doesn't actually mean they're going to meet every standard. In our text today, we're going to see that even if you know so much about God and his doctrine, all of that can be considered useless if you do not love people. Right? All of your religious and Christian skill and knowledge will go to waste if you do not actually love the people God put around you. So God is saying to me, right, from this text, that all of those books in my office, all of those sermons I've preached and will preach, all of those weddings, all of those funerals, all of that is useless if I do not love people. Because I can be so sure of my doctrine, so confident in any skill, and yet you can still leave love at home. Today, we're going to begin a new section of 1 Corinthians. Uh, From chapter 8 to chapter 10, Paul's going to encourage the church with one overall theme, to love others. So far in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has said, the church of Corinth, you need to be unified and you need to have purity. And now it's going to be about loving one another. And this begins in chapter 8. So please turn to chapter 8 if you can find it there in 1 Corinthians on page 956 of those Black Pew Bibles. Uh, The only thing we're going to have on the screen today is the passage. If you're a note taker, I will try to speak slower today. 
1 Corinthians 8. Once you find that, would you please stand in reverence for the word of the Lord? Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be, so, may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, let uh, Psalm 119.97 be true of us this morning. Let us love your word and let it be our meditation all the day. Spirit, help us. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Paul wrote this passage, this book, about AD 55. And to best understand this passage, it's probably best to understand what Corinth looked like in AD 55. There are multiple temples to gods and goddesses. And these temples were not just visited on days of worship like Sunday, like we often just come to this building on Sundays. They were used daily by masses of people. Today in our Western world, we have a good, somewhat division of church and state. It's not perfect, but we try to keep religion out of this and politics out of religion, and we try to have this huge divide. But back in the day in Corinth, there was no uh, division. Everything was intermingled, politics and religion, parties, culture, everything had religion in it. Historians have found old documents where people hosted birthday parties in like temples to Athena. Funerals and celebrations of a newborn child were hosted in the temples of gods and goddesses. And if you worked, you know, out in the fields of Corinth and you're coming home, it would not be unusual for your coworkers, your fellow farmers to say, hey, you want to go meet at the temple of Athena for, uh, for a feast tonight? Right? These kind of were like the community centers or the, the Wisconsin bar and restaurants we have today. However, they were more than that because Every time you'd come to one of these, there would be a religious ceremony where you would sacrifice a meat and participate in some act of worship, and then you'd get the food, and you'd get the drink, and then you'd have the social party. And then whatever food was left over, whatever meat was left over, they would take out to the marketplace, and they would sell it. So as you went grocery shopping the day after, you might be buying some of the meat that was sacrificed to idols the night before. 
So Paul's writing to a group of Christians who have grown up and live in the city of Corinth, full of these temples, and these Christians are wondering, how do we now act around these temples? What do I do with these, these pagan feasts? What if my coworker invites me to come out there? Because these Christians want to be good citizens, right? They want to have good reputation. They want to evangelize. And if every time they're turning down these people, are they going to look like prudes? But they also don't want to go if it's going to tempt them to worship idols. So there's a lot of things going on here that I think you and I take for granted that we don't have to deal with because these Christians kind of figured it out for us. I mean, just imagine you become a Christian and your life changes and you see these false gods as foolish, but at the end of the workday, you are invited to the retirement party of your coworker at the temple of Athena. What are you going to do? Right? To us, at times, the Bible looks like these hypothetical situations, but this was a real concern for someone living in Corinth. But what makes it even harder is that there were two groups in the church of Corinth that were struggling with this issue. And both groups were wrong. So everyone was confused. So here comes Paul to answer and give them instruction. But our chapter is mostly going to focus on just one of these groups. And their main issue was that they acted in a way that was not loving toward the other believers. So I want to give you the main point. And by the end of it, you're going to see how all this connects. But here's the main point of our, of our passage today is this, no matter how confident you are in your Christian doctrine, it is all useless without love. No matter how confident you are in your Christian doctrine, it is all useless without love. There's two groups of people in this text. There's two problems. Each group has a problem, and then we're going to give two answers. So today's sermon is going to be two groups, two problems, Two answers, two, two, two. Let's look at the, the first point of two groups. Two groups. In verses 7 to 13, Paul references two groups. We're going to name them today just for clarity's sake. One is called the weak, and one is called the knowers. We're not going to call the knowers the strong because they are not strong in love. That'd be giving them way too much credit. We have the weak, and we have the knowers. Now, both groups have their problems, okay? That's going to be the next point. But Paul focuses more on one of these groups. He's going to rebuke one of these groups more than the other. But for clarity, sense of interpretation, we're going to look at both. In verse 7, we read about the weak. The weak are those who struggle with the idea of idolatry. The weak were people from Corinth who grew up going to these idol feasts and participating in these sacrifices, and now they believe in Jesus, but verse 7 says that they struggle internally, their conscience is weak, and they slip back into belief at times that these idols and these false gods have a lot more power than they do, when in reality they have no power. They eat the food from the pagan feast to the idols and believe that those gods are actually existing. They are letting a false religion that they were saved from have too much of an influence on their life now. Thus they're called weak, their faith in God, their knowledge in God is weak. They're letting something false appear to be true, and it's pulling them back to idolatry. It's like a weak foundation. So that's weak. They're tempted by idols. Idols are paralyzing them. But the other group is the group that Paul's really going to bring the hammer down on in this text, okay? And this is the group we call the knowers. These are the supposedly, look at me, this is air quotes, supposedly mature Christians, 
though we're going to see that they're not in a major area. These are the Christians who know their doctrine. They know their Old Testament. They know the teachings of Jesus. They are the wise ones in the church. Verses 8 to 12 speak about this group. But this group sees the idols in the temples as foolish and made up. So the the weak at times believe these idols were real, but the knowers have their knowledge. They say, oh, that's just a made up formed object out of wood or metal or stone. I have my doctrinal stances. That stuff is foolish. Why even go near there? And with their knowledge and their confidence, they can go and sit in those idol temples and not be tempted to worship. They can go to these feasts and feel like they're not participating. So the weak go to the temple and are tempted. The knowers go to the temple and say, I know better. That stuff is fake. That's the two groups. But each one of those groups has a problem. Each one of those groups has a wrong belief. Let's look at the weak first. The weak's problem. The way we're going to summarize the weak's problem is that they have a lack of doctrinal depth. The weak fall into sin and temptation to worship idols because they have a lack of doctrinal depth. This is the group that forgets that false gods are false. They forget that God is the only true God. So what their problem is, they have a lack of doctrinal depth. Doctrine is a word that means set of beliefs. It's shallow. So they have a less than firm foundation of who God is. So when they're presented with the worldly belief, that looks attractive because God does not look that attractive to them. Instead of seeing it as false, they give in. So their lack of understanding who God is makes them look at false gods. And boy, that's true today. And it's been true every century of church history, a lack of understanding and awareness of who God is and what God has done opens the door for idolatry and sin. And as a good sermon listener, which I know all of you are, you might be asking, but Troy, where in our text is Paul rebuking the weaker group? Where does he have a lack? Where does he say they have a lack of doctrinal depth? What's the verse? What's the chapter? Well, he doesn't. And before you cry out mutiny of my sermon, let me explain. If you all you had in the Bible was 1 Corinthians 8, you would think, I'm overstepping my boundaries. But we don't read the Bible. We don't read a Bible passage without looking at the rest of the Bible. And especially in Bible reading, you don't look at a passage in 1 Corinthians without looking at the rest of 1 Corinthians. And just two chapters later in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul comes back to this situation and brings the hammer down on the weaker people who are going to this temple. Brings it upon everybody, but the weaker are influenced there. In chapter 10, Paul rebukes all Christians. In chapter 10, verse 14, when he says, flee from idolatry. And to make it more serious and applicable here, chapter 10, verse 20, Paul says that behind these pagan idolatry feasts and temples, guess who's present? Demons. Paul says, by giving into your weak convictions of should I go or not go to this temple, if you go, you are going to engage in what is called demon worship. That's pretty serious. We're going to get back to that in a couple weeks, but what Paul is saying is that if you know the meat you are getting comes from idol worship, or you go to the idol worship, you are practicing demon worship. That's not a gray issue. That's a black and white issue. But Paul's not doing that in our text yet because he's going to come back to it. So he doesn't say, hey, you're wrong. Why are you doing this? But he says, hang on, I'll get to you in two chapters. 
But when a Christian or a church adopts a worldly view that is not compatible with the Bible, then they are lacking in doctrinal depth. They're not applying the doctrine of the Bible to their lives. For example, for centuries, our American forefathers neglected a very key doctrine of the Bible. It's a doctrine we call uh, the image of God in man, that man and woman are made in the image of God and all are created with value and dignity. It's right there in Genesis 1. Look at verse 26. God made man in his image full of value and dignity, and yet our American forefathers, many of them who profess to be Christians, adopted the worldly sinful system of slavery. They allowed a worldly value to trump the clearly written word of God. And they knew a lot, but they didn't let the knowledge of God trump their sin. And guess what? There are not many sermons or biblical commentaries on Genesis 1.26 in the 17, 18, 1700s and 1800s. Why? Because they wanted to avoid that part of the doctrine. Idolatry and sins come when we have a small view of God in his Bible. Whatever we see today, right? Whatever hot topic you see, right? Sexual promiscuity, when people in the church are sleeping around or cohabitating or same-sex relationships, it's because we have chosen to neglect or resist what God's word and doctrine says on it. You can look at all church history and see this. A lack of doctrinal depth leads to weakness in certain areas. And so what the weak didn't have on their own was doctrinal depth. They didn't see God as the one true God, so they gave in to all these false gods. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that when you go to these feasts, you are pledging allegiance essentially to the demons. So they need to know more about who God is to stand firmer against temptation. But again, let's look at the knower. Look at the knower's problem, because this is what Paul prioritizes here. How are we going to summarize what the problem is with the group called the knowers? Their problem is they have a lack of love despite doctrinal depth. This group had a lack of love despite having doctrinal depth. Lots of convictions, lots of opinions, lots of Bible references, and yet they lacked love. So the knowers, they look at the idols and false gods and temples as foolish and fake, so they stroll in confidently to these social events, and they're not tempted. So they're going to be surprised in chapter 10 when Paul condemns them as well for going to the place of the demons. But in chapter 8, Paul's first argument against this group is their lack of love. Not their wrong doctrine, but their lack of love. He says, even if you do know better than the weak, why not serve the weak instead of hurting the weak? You see, by the knowers going to these parties... They encourage the weak to go as well. Christians, our actions are not in a vacuum. Our actions influence others. And here we see one's actions, based on some doctrinal conviction, actually lead another group to sin. Look at verses 8 to 12 one more time. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But here it is. But take care that this, air quotes, sarcastic, this right of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak. 
For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Again, Paul's going to say they actually don't have a right to eat this food because chapter 10 says not to. But Paul says to this group of people with great theological acumen and confidence that though they are wise in knowing that idolatry is foolish and fake, they have neglected to even consider their brothers. By the knowers going to this pagan festivals and being seen by the weaker brothers, the weaker brothers felt encouraged that they could eat meat and be okay. This is what the term stumbling block means, that someone tempted to sin in their own conscience sins because of another brother's actions or leading. Again, verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. The weak have a faulty, unformed, immature conscience. What's a conscience? A conscience is the inward belief you have of what is right and wrong. These weak Christians have a weak conscience, so they're able to see things right, think through things biblically, have a good sense of what to do and what not to do. So these knowers come in and stop by these pagan parties, and now the weak see their example, and they're looking up to their wiser brothers. They think, it must be okay for me to go. So the knowers are influencing poorly. And Paul says, Paul says here, imagine that God is okay with you going to these idol temples. He's not. But let's imagine it's permissible for you to go. It would still be wrong for you to go if you cause your weak brother to sin. Even if it's okay legally, you can still sin against Christ if you go, if you cause someone else to sin. This goes against everything American. Everything America says, if I have the right, you cannot stop me from going. Where God says, it might be even right, but if it's going to lead that person you're going with into sin, it's wrong for you to go. This is opposite of what America says. So for example, let's say you convert a friend to Christianity. His previous life, before Christ, struggled with alcohol addiction. He's trying to break that habit. Maybe he broke it. But he's been a Christian for a couple weeks, becomes a Christian, and you invite him to go grab a beer with you and your fellow church friends. Is that permissible by the Bible to go have a beer? Yes, it is. The Bible says do not get drunk. Can you go get a beer by the Bible? Yes, you can. But if this new Christian says to you or you know that in his conscience he will be tempted to sin against his own right and wrong, then you will be sinning inviting him to go. If in his own conscience he decided it is wise for me to not go because if I go I'm going to be tempted to drink and I might become a drunk and it's going to be sinning. And if, he, if you know that and yet you invite him anyway, even though you're allowed to, you are actually sinning against Christ and him. So you will be a stumbling block. There's a lot in Romans 14 about this too, if you want to learn a lot more about conscience. But I do want to make this clear. Because I grew up in the church, and I heard the term stumbling block all the time. 
I've never seen a block just out there making, trying to cause me to stumble, right? Um, but a stumbling block is not something that you are just offended by. Right? Sometimes we say, I'm not going to drink because I don't want to be a stumbling block. That's fine. But if someone is just offended that you drink, that's not a stumbling block. If someone chooses to not drink, great, but to drink around them is not to be a stumbling block unless they are tempted, and it's wrong for them. Stumbling block implies that there's something wrong in someone's conscience, and they've made it known, and if you were to do that, you would make them sin. Being offended is not a stumbling block, right? Disagreeing with someone over a movie or a music choice is not a stumbling block unless they say to you, if I watch this with you, I'm going to sin. So Paul's rebuking the knowers. He's saying, even if it were allowed to go to these temples, you still forgot one big rule. Love your neighbor. Because they led weaker, younger Christians into a place of sin. The knowers think they're so secure in their doctrine. Idolatry is wrong. And yet they forgot to consider newer Christians. They have doctrinal depth they don't have love, which means they have nothing. In verse 1, Paul condemns the knowers. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Their knowledge gave them an arrogant and prideful big head, and it had no room for love in it. They became so about themselves and their own confidence in their theology that they neglected other believers, right? These knowers are like a bulldozer. They have a huge, big, right equipment. They're huge in the church, and yet they neglect to see who's in front of them as they bulldoze through the church lobby. It's so easy to think, I know what is right. I read that book. I know that book of the Bible. I listened to this podcast. I wrote that article. I see this as right. I see this as wrong. And it's so easy to forget to ask the question, how will this impact my brother or my sister? This is what the Corinthian knowers neglected. They let their theology, which by the way was wrong, dominate their thinking without ever wondering how they might damage the weak. They chose theological arrogance over love. Overall, we cannot take this situation and go apples to apples to us today. Most likely you've not been invited to go to the temple of Athena recently. But a more general application question for you is, do you ever consider that even within our own church body, that there are different levels of knowledge and conviction and maturity? That you are not here just for your own maturity, but you are here for the maturity of others. So at times you might need to wind it back at times, you might need to catch up. I don't know, but do you ever consider that not everyone is where you are, and it's not a time to always judge and make a stance, but sometimes it's a time to love and be patient and walk alongside of people instead of trying to get them to a point? Before we get to the last point of the two answers, I want to picture one more thing. Why don't you just picture like a big you know, neighborhood community pool and the weak from 1 Corinthians 8, the weak are those in the shallow end of the pool. They just got in. They're newer Christians trying to figure out how to swim in this water of Christianity. But they're not at the point yet of being able to dive deep into the deep end. They can't swim in the deep end. They're maybe timid. Some of them are holding on to the walls, holding on to the railing coming into the water. 
but they look out to the deep end and there's, there's the knowers, the so-called mature people in the church. And they're having a good time. They're swimming on their backs, right? They have their drinks in the water. They have so much safety and security in their swimming abilities and their theological acumen. There they are, right? With all their floaties and all that stuff. And then the knowers in the deep end call over to the weak and say, come on over here. The water is just fine over here. And the weak, seeing the more knowledgeable, wiser, cooler, right, people in the church, say, we're going to go over there. It must be okay. But the problem is what? They cannot swim. A non-skilled swimmer in a deep end of a pool is a problem, and both sides are wrong. The weak should have not gone to the deep end, but also the deep end should not have called for the weak. Instead, what should have happened? The knowers should have swam over, befriended, hung out with the weak, and gradually teach them how to swim so one day they can be in the deep end together. To give up their rights for now of the deep end. And this is dangerous because verse 11, this is a serious verse. Verse 11 says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. You know what that word destroyed means? It means destroyed. That on the last day before Jesus, they will be destroyed. If someone keeps worshiping idols, you will not be received into heaven. What's the, what's the Ten Commandments say? You shall have no other gods before me. So this is crucial and vitally important. There's two groups, two problems to each group, or a problem to each group. Now we have two answers. What's the answer we'd give to solve the problem of the weak who have a lack of doctrinal depth? <clears throat> we would tell them, know the true God so you will resist false gods. Know the true God so you will resist false gods. The weak Corinthians... We're letting idols take control. So they need to fill their mind and their hearts with a, a vision of who God is. And that's partially why Paul writes this beautiful verse in verse 6. Verse 6, he says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Right, verse 4 and 5 say, yes, people have false gods, false lords, but verse 6, this is who the true God and the true Lord is. We have one God. This is taken right from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Lord our God is one, the Shema. We have one Lord God. And here he clarifies, the only God we have is the Father, the only Lord we have is Jesus. This is not Paul saying Jesus isn't God. This is Paul saying that the only God and the only Lord that is living and breathing and worth submitting to is the Christian God from whom all things come and for the purpose for all things exist in. Our creation and our existence is found in God the Father and God the Son. Those idols over there are mere creations of wood and metal and stone. They are artificial. 
Paul wants these weaker Christians to study God. To study God the Father, to see how he created all things in Genesis 1, how he called a people to himself in Genesis 12. He called Abraham out of a land of false gods to worship the true God. How God led a people out of Egypt who was worshiping Pharaoh and all these Egyptian false gods and through the 10 plagues showed that those false gods have nothing on God. The God who grabbed Elijah and Elijah wiped out the prophets of Baal to show how foolish these false gods are. We have to have a bigger vision of God so that we do not turn to sin and idolatry. But then there's God the Son, the Son, the promised Messiah, who from the first page of the Bible has been set in motion, and even before then, to free people from their sins, the idols and the sin that we have. We pursue these dead, foolish, vain-filled idols, and here is Jesus walking out of a tomb alive after suffering for our idolatry. This verse 6, this Christological statement should be a reawakening for weak Christians and even for strong Christians that we should never stop studying God. We've got to learn how to swim in doctrinal knowledge so that our vision of God is so beautiful and true and good that we can spot foolishness from a mile away. And some of you might feel like you are weak on what you believe. Maybe you see a lack of confidence when you grab your Bible in the mornings or in the evenings and you wonder like, I just kind of open up to a verse and I hope I understand it and take something away. I want you to say, that's okay. Sometimes you might hear words from the pulpit here and you're like, I have no idea what that means, but everyone else is nodding and I don't know. They might be nodding because they think they're supposed to nod. I don't know. My encouragement to you is to begin to take theological swim lessons. First of all, there's no substitute for being in the living word of God. Every day, even if you feel like you don't understand it. Okay, we made a, a little, if you go to the, uh, the welcome desk out there, there's a little uh, green booklet, just a couple pages long that says how to study my Bible. And it gives you some questions. It also makes a plan for you that's not too big that you can start getting in your word every day. Come to Bible studies here because all that is is a group of Christians together around the table or in a room studying who God is. Go to the library, grab a, 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 a book there about who God is. There's elder recommended books out there in the lobby. Keep coming. Those songs we sang today, for example, if you have to write them, bring your bulletin home, listen to them at home. There's theology that we're singing over time, long term you will learn how to swim more and more in God's knowledge. It doesn't just stay in your mind, but that gets to your heart so that when you see things, you stay away from it. Right? Jen Wilkins says, your heart cannot love what your mind does not know. So you can think, hey, I just want a personal relationship with God. I'll leave the doctrine to those scholarly people. I'm not going to read my Bible. I come to sermons once a week. I'm good to go. No, you cannot have a personal relationship if you do not know who Jesus is. So grow in your doctrine. But what's the answer to the other group, to the knowers? The answer is this. Never let your doctrine or your convictions outpace your love for your brother. 
Never let your doctrine or your convictions outpace your love for your brother. The danger to knowledge is pride. That we will know so much, have such strong beliefs, have such strong convictions of knowing where we are right, and we will neglect to think of our brothers and sisters, that we will judge and condemn before we sit and listen, that we will assume we are more mature when someone disagrees with us. And guess what? You might be right. You might be mature in your knowledge, but is that still worth not loving your brother? I'm not saying we should never correct each other. I'm not saying we shouldn't encourage the weak to swim deeper, right? We're we're called to do that. We're not going to preach an inch deep here. But in our pursuit of knowledge and doctrine, we can so easily forget to love. We can let our Bible study and our convictions outpace our love for each other. And this is what happened in Corinth. So we need to be mindful and think, as I grow and as I think, as I form my convictions and my opinions, am I still loving people well? I'm going to give you a scenario that you're going to face for the rest of your Christian life. You may be at this church the rest of your life or another church like this. At some point, you're going to come here and you're going to think, okay, most people agree on almost everything here. But then there's going to be a conversation an event, something that's going to be said, and all of a sudden you're going to feel a sense of panic inside where you believe this, but someone else is taking a different view or they're not as strong as you, and all of a sudden you think, oh no, what's going to happen? Right? There are things that you have to believe to belong here at CVBC. You cannot join our membership if you, if you cannot subscribe to every single word of our doctrinal statement, for example. You must believe in God the Father, God the Son, just how verse 6 says. There are things in there that we say, these are the hills we are going to die on. But there are disputable matters, things left up to your own conviction that we do not police. For example, we don't ask, nor do we encourage all church members to educate their kids in one single way. We're not going to make a position on what type of schooling. And yet, you may be so strongly convicted this way and shocked that someone could be so strongly convicted that way. The answer to this internal dilemma is not to fight about it or try to get everybody on the same page. It's to continue to love that person despite a difference on a disputable matter. Maybe you've caught yourself thinking, wow, they send their kids to that school? Or you think, oh, those parents, they must be overprotective. If so, then maybe you are falling into the trap of letting your convictions and your opinion outpace your love for your brother. Now, if that person were to say, hey, I I don't believe in Jesus anymore, you should confront them. That's not disputable. But it could be an issue regarding alcohol. Maybe you believe that a Christian shouldn't drink, or maybe you're a Christian, you imagine, why would everyone not drink? Is he a legalist? Is he a prude? It could be regarding R-rated movies or types of music. It could be, should you celebrate Halloween or should you not? It could be theological issues like end times. It could be lots of things that we don't make primary. Friends, if you cannot love one another well while holding a certain conviction then you are in danger. Can you pray out of thankfulness for that brother you disagree with? Now, not praying that they change their mind to be like you. 
Can you pray out of genuine thankfulness for that brother or sister? Can you sit down at a meal with them and enjoy them for who they are, not just think of them as a position on a topic? Can you actually sit with them and enjoy them? If not, then you might be in danger. Now, this is all not the same situation in Corinth, but I think it applies today. Are you setting your Christian life to be one of charity for indisputable things? Like, do you have people surrounding you who have different choices on disputable matters and you can still sit in the pew and sing proudly next to them and say, that's my brother? Can you sit down and actually talk to someone about one of these issues and not get angry and ruin your relationship? And maybe at times, instead of thinking, oh, that's the person I disagree with on this, can you think, oh, that's the person that agrees with me that Jesus is Lord? I say this a lot, but I think, I think it's important. I, I, think, I think one of the ways to build up your love for your fellow brothers and sisters is to pray specifically for your church family. Right again, if you have a church directory, Pray for the people. Look at their faces as you pray. Yes, God hears your prayers even if your eyes are open. Look at their faces and pray for them that you will love them well because one day you might realize you don't hold something as strongly as they do, but guess what? You already love them. Surround yourself with people who believe in the essentials like here and believe that loving people is one of those essentials. Do you see verse 13, Paul in hyperbole, an exaggeration. He says, I will give up meat if it serves my brother. Is he exaggerating? Yeah, probably. But loving people was so vital to Paul that he actually put it on the table that he would give up meat if it served others best. Do we put others up on our pedestal of essential beliefs? As important as it is to be right on this, is it as important or even higher that we love our brother? Corinth seemed to choose knowledge over love. Others choose love over knowledge. But see, we see, we don't have to choose between the two. They go together. This is what I want to end on. Look one more time at verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Christ didn't die for our schooling options. He didn't die for our views on alcohol or movies or politics. He died for our sins, and he died to bring a people together. Jesus Christ died for you, and he died for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what this verse says. So we should not allow our pride and our convictions to turn people that we worship with into topics or issues. No matter their stance on this or their stance on that, they are your brother or your sister in Christ. And Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and he died for your sins, and he resurrected from the tomb to bring you life and to bring them life. He was not on the cross or in the tomb thinking about what your view was on this or that. He was seeing your sin, and he's bringing you forgiveness. And now he, by his wisdom, has brought together a people at Chippewa Valley Bible Church who have different opinions and convictions on disputable matters. But let the first thing that we think of when we lock eyes with each other is, that is my brother or my sister for whom my Lord Jesus Christ died for. 
And when we get to heaven, we might be surprised of where we were wrong in some of our convictions. And yet Jesus looked at you and said, I laid down my life for you anyway, brother. This is the gospel. This is how the gospel even impacts our conscience. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you will become greater and we will become less. That you will increase and we will decrease. That we are so about who you are so that we can love people. Let this not be an option of being either people of truth or grace or knowledge or love, but let us be all of it. The more that we see you, the more we love people. Grow in us a knowledge for you, a thirst and hunger for righteousness in your word. Grow in us a hunger and a thirst for love and charity. Jesus, thank you that you would die for our sins. In your name we pray, amen.